Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all here this afternoon on a little grey, drizzly summer's day in, uh, in London. More importantly, can I introduce Doug Edwards and welcome him today. Um, just a few quick introductions. My name's Jill Nurse. I work here at LSE. I teach marketing here. Um, so I'm very excited personally to have Doug here. Um, I'm a practitioner turned academic. And so back in the sort of similar period that Doug was working um, over at Google, I was um, blazoning a trail of cable TV in the UK um, and later went on to spend some time working at B-Sky B. Um, firstly, can I just mention um, Doug's book, um, which I've left down there. There it is. I'm feeling lucky. Google employee number 59. Um, that's going to be on sale, and Doug's going to hang around and do some signing. So if anyone's interested in that, then um, we're going to make our way outside towards the end, um, and, and we'll greet you outside. Okay, well, given that I spend lots of my time talking to my students about all sorts of different case studies, we're going to spend a little bit of time now um, asking Doug some of the questions that I have for him, and then we'll open it up to you guys. Can I just say first, I'm really impressed at how few people are texting while we're doing this. So if you feel the need in the middle to go ahead and break out your Blackberry or your iPhone, whatever, and start, it's okay. I'm used to it. So. Okay. So, Doug, first question. Um, what, what made you go ahead and, and decide to write this book? I don't know how sensitive these mics are. I'll lean forward. Um, so there were a couple of reasons I wrote the book. Um, first off, I wanted to make sure that some of the individuals at Google who had worked really, really hard to make Google a success were able to get the recognition that they deserved. Because a large part of what made Google what it is today happened behind the scenes. There was a lot of work on not very sexy things like systems and hardware. And I wanted to call out those people who had worked on those and um, give them a, a bit of recognition. Uh, secondly, you know, I wanted to tell what it felt like to be at Google, because there have been a number of books that have been written uh, about Google, and, and several of them are actually quite good uh, in giving the history of Google and the things that Google encountered along its, its path to its current monstrous size. And, the one thing that was missing was a sense of what it actually felt like to be at the company during that period. And I felt that I was perhaps uniquely qualified to do that because uh, having lived through it and been a person who spoke with, quote unquote, the Google voice, um, I felt like it, it made sense for me to write a book about Google in the Google voice. And then the final reason I wrote it was because for years after I left, and I left six years ago, all of these stories were bouncing around in my head. And every time I went on the internet, or turned on the television, or listened to the radio, or opened a newspaper, it was Google, 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 all the time. And every time I saw the logo or heard the name, I said, it was, oh, there's a story about that. So I figured out that the only way to get it out of my head and stop it from bumping into the edges of my brain was to write it down in a book. Uh, and that has proven to be very therapeutic. I actually can now go online and see Google's logo without thinking, oh, you know, I should really tell a story about that because now it's in the book and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Good, thank you. So some of the feelings that I, I got reading through, um, through your book, some really pivotal decisions that probably were made early on um, I'm not sure how planned those decisions were or how they emerged organically. But if you had to pick maybe three or four um, you know, key decisions that, that Larry and Sergey were involved in, perhaps you, yourself as well, um, are there any that particularly stick in your mind? Well, I, the first thing and probably the most important thing that Larry and Sergey did was to hire an engineer named Urs Holsel. And Ors came to Google as the first head of engineering. And he was really an amazing individual. I talk about him a lot in the book. But he had a very clear understanding of software, hardware, 
and architecture and how to build Google so that it could do the things that Larry and Sergey wanted it to do. They were visionaries and idealists and dreamers and Ors was the one who was the master of the art of the possible. So he would take their vision and say, well, that's a great idea, but not now. We can't do that right now. We need to do this first and then this and that. And the other thing that Ors did was he built the team that built Google. He hired the key engineers, um, starting with Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gemawat, who would write the code that made Google run so fast and made Google capable of doing the incredible things that it did that none of its competitors could do. And Ors had a policy of never hire someone who is not smarter than you are. So that sets the bar pretty high for most people. Well, you know, I think I'm pretty smart, but, you know, I need to hire somebody smarter than me. And he held the employees to that. He did not let them off the hook. Um, and there were months uh, when Google desperately needed engineers to come in and just throw at problems. And Orson, Larry, and Sergey would sit down and review the candidates, and they'd say, no, we can't hire these people. They're just not up to the level of what we expect our engineers to be. Um, so that was one key decision. Another was that they refused to accept anything as, as a sacred cow. They did not want to do anything the way anyone had ever done it before. And, and I talk in the book about George Salah, who was the facilities manager. And he came to Google from Oracle, which was already a very large company. And at Oracle, where he had handled facilities, they had a set of books you know, here's the standards that Oracle has in place. Uh, when you open a new office, here's the size of the cubicle wall, here's the color that you paint the doors, and they would just roll it out across all their companies. And he went to Larry and Sergey and he said, well, you know, it would certainly save a lot of time if we had some standards. Do you mind if I put some standards in place? And Larry and Sergey looked at him and they said, no. Absolutely no, we don't want anything to be standard. We don't want anything in this company to be the way that other people did it just because there was a precedent for it. So their refusal to accept industry convention uh, in any aspect of the company, I think was a key attitude that they had from the beginning. Um, and then one other strategic thing from a business strategy um, there was a question early on about whether or not Google would be a provider of search technology to other companies, which is what uh, Inktomy was doing. They were just selling their search technology to other companies to put on their websites. Or if Google would become what was called a destination site, where you would go and do your own search using a Google-branded search. And, you know, typically you can't do both. You can't compete with your own suppliers, uh, with your own uh, customers. And so if you're supplying search technology and you have your own search site, then you have channel conflict because you're competing with the people that you're trying to sell your technology to. And again, Larry and Sergey said, no, we'll do both. And that proved to be enormously important later on because when Google was competing with Overture in advertising sales, Overture was a supplier. They put their search results with advertising on other websites, but they didn't have their own destination site. And so they had gained a large market share uh, with this product. And they were keeping a fair amount of the revenue when they placed their ads on other websites. And Google was able to come in and say, okay, we're gonna give you ads, but we're gonna take less of the revenue. So we're gonna give more of the profit to the people who are running the ads on their sites. And the reason Google could do that was because they were generating enormous revenues off the ads running on Google.com. So the fact that Google had its own destination site, as well as was acting as a supplier, enabled it to undercut Overture's margins. And that eventually led to Google's success in, in the advertising space. Um, I guess one of the other questions I have as a marketeer myself um, is, this idea of um, was Google initially product oriented? Were they market oriented? You know, where did the customer and the customer's needs fit into this? Um, and I guess your role as that lone marketing guy 
Um, did you feel outnumbered by the engineers? Um, on many occasions, yes. Uh, and I wasn't the lone marketing guy. There were some PR folks as well, and, and a couple of other people uh, joined the organization uh, in marketing later. But it was definitely, uh, in proportion, much smaller than engineering. Um, so I wouldn't say that Google didn't have a customer-oriented approach, but you have to realize that the most important customer for Google was Larry Page, because he used Google. He developed Google, and he used Google. And so if it worked for Larry, it was good. And uh, that was really the first principle that we had to uphold, was it had to be something Larry wanted Google to do. So that meant that a lot of energy went into developing the product in ways that Larry found important. And you know, Larry's an engineer. Um, Larry really hates to waste time. And so it was very, very important to him that Google be incredibly fast. Because even a lag of milliseconds, he could tell, you know, no, it's too slow. And people, you know, just were like, how can you even tell? He said, no, it's too slow. And so um, that emphasis on speed early on became a very uh, important aspect of Google as a product. Um, and it's true that marketing, you know, was not, um, I want to say, given as much respect as it might have been given in other companies. Um, there was some sense that uh, because marketing was not quantifiable in the same way that engineering was, that it maybe was not as legitimate uh, a practice. Um, with engineering, it worked or it didn't work. It was on, it was off, it was a one or a zero. And with marketing, it was squishier. And, you know, sometimes there would be you know, emotional elements to marketing in terms of, you know, trying to persuade people to do things. And, you know, I, I talk about, um, in the book, about how Larry felt about frequent flyer programs. You know, loyalty programs, what could be wrong with that, right? I mean, you get a reward for using a service, um, and it encourages you to use a service again. The problem with that is that might not be the best service for you. It might not be the shortest flight. It might not be uh, the cheapest flight. It might not be the most direct flight. But you're going to book it anyway because you get all these great frequent flyer miles. And so Larry didn't want to do that kind of thing. He didn't want people to use Google if it wasn't the best service for them. So would that be categorized as one of the don't be evil? <laughs> I, I think that would probably fall under Larry's definition of evil. OK. Yeah. OK. And I'm interested also how um, that sort of brand personality, that is it frugality, efficiency, you know, those sorts of, of really clear directions that were coming through from, from Larry and Sergey, how they then um, supported you in developing a brand that looked out to, to customers. How did you envelop those, those visionary ideas and, and translate those to, to customers? Well, I mean, it was part of my job to try to translate um, the attitude of the founders into a customer interface, you know, to, to talk to customers in a way that translated Larry and Sergey's vision. Um, and there were some definite operating principles that the company believed in. I think um, one of those was uh, under-promise and over-deliver. And so, you know, I talk about instances like Netscape, when Google launched um, started providing search to Netscape, um, they expected that the traffic to Google search would go up, you know, one or two times, and it went up seven times, and instantly, as soon as it was turned on. And so Google started melting down. I mean, it, it couldn't handle the volume of queries, even though they had been working for weeks to add more servers uh, in anticipation of this deal. And the only solution they could come up with was to turn Google off so that if you went to google.com and did a search, you'd get a screen that said, we're, we're not currently replying to searches. But Netscape stayed up because it was more important to Google, Netscape was their first major client, it was more important to Google that Netscape be satisfied as a client uh, than the, our own brand you know, uh, be sustained. So that was the case where um, Google, you know, they had no obligation to shut down Google. In fact, Netscape was astounded that we would do that, that the company would shut down its own site in order to provide for a partner. Um, the other key principle that was somewhat in conflict with that 
on occasion was uh, this sense that they should pay us. So whenever we negotiated a contract, the starting position was, yeah, they should pay us, even though we were buying a service from them. And that, you know, the, the focus on frugality. Yeah, must have made for some interesting negotiations. Well, it, it was always difficult to come back and, and tell Sergey, you know, I got a great deal on something. I, I'm paying less than 50% of the retail rate. And he'd say, you know, go back. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, you're, you're not doing a very good job negotiating. Maybe I should have somebody else come in and do the contract. So um, that put a certain amount of pressure on, on those of us who had to deal with outside vendors. But it, you know, the, the company culture was very strong and frugality was part of it, but also this sense that we should delight our users, that there should be, um, when we introduced a new product like the calculator, um, you know, that is built into Google, um, that you should be able to not only add, subtract, multiply, divide, you know, find values of pi or whatever, but you should be able to convert you know, furlongs into you know, feet or miles or whatever you know, per second. And um, that was just always understood to be part of the company, that we should do more than people expect. Let, let's just talk briefly about um, the revenue model. Um, when I was spending time at Sky and some tech startups, all we always all used to talk about was how are we going to monetize this? You know, where's the revenue coming from? What, what's the business model? Um, I see an absence of that, certainly the early part of, of the, the, the time in the organization. Um, any reasons why? Did you have any ideas? What, what would be that killer application that might deliver the revenues? Yeah, in retrospect, I should have been a lot more worried about that than I was um, when I started working there because I was 41 and I had three kids and I'd taken a $25,000 pay cut to go work at Google and they had no revenue. So I, I probably, in retrospect, should have given that more thought. Um, but, you know, from the earliest presentation that Google's executives did to the venture capitalists who funded the company, um, baked into that presentation, which was not very deep. Uh, a lot of slides with clip art pictures of, you know, trees growing money. That was a <laughs> revenue slide. Here's a tree growing money. Um, so uh, they had identified, you know, possible revenue streams, one of which was licensing the technology, um, but one of which was also targeted advertising. And it took them a while to come back to targeted advertising as a revenue stream. And part of the reason for that was if you go back and you look at the original paper describing Google that Larry and Sergey wrote when they were students at Stanford, they talk about the danger to a search engine of accepting advertising because the temptation to skew the results in favor of advertisers would be so great that it would likely corrupt the value of the search engine. And they thought that was terrible. And they warned about that. And so when it came time for Google to raise revenue. They started by licensing the technology. They were selling search services to other uh, web companies. But eventually, they did try advertising. And advertising went through three iterations at Google. And the first original advertising was just on a CPM or cost per thousand impressions basis. And so you pay us X dollars and we'll show your ad X number of times targeted to the keywords that you've bought. Um, the first major innovation was AdWords, which was a self-service um, program where you could take your credit card, give the number to Google, and they would, uh, you know, you could write your own ad. It was all text, and they would put it up. That was still on a CPM basis. Um, and at that point, Larry thought he was done with advertising. You know, I talked to the ads engineers who, who worked on the project, and Larry didn't want to think about advertising anymore. He didn't like advertising. Advertising was not where he wanted to put his efforts. Um, and so he felt that Google could leave it at that. But the engineers who worked on the advertising program and Salar Kamangar, uh, who was one of the executives, who started as an intern uh, at Google and is now head of YouTube. Um, so that, that's the kind of place Google was. Um, but uh, Salar and engineers like Eric Veach felt like it, it wasn't good enough because our competition overture was doing better than we were. And so they kept innovating and came up with a new model which had auction-based pricing and a cost-per-click uh, basis. 
And that's really the engine driving Google today uh, to a large degree. Um, so, you know, there were always revenue potential, you know, models with revenue potential that they considered, but they didn't immediately implement all of them. It's great to have that freedom. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, guys, I'm going to open it up to the audience now. I think I've asked enough academic questions. So um, I know I've got some of my students that have been with me at summer school around. So um, if you would like to raise your hands, then we've got some people roving around with mics. Yeah, we get some oh. mic first. Right. We've got someone in the middle here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so post-2005, do you think that Google have adhered to its don't be evil policy with continued sort of cont contextual ads, Google Buzz and other uh, products that don't appear, you know, that um, malevolent? Well, you know, I, I surprisingly get asked that question a lot. Um, you know, <laughs> I think Google has made some missteps. I think Buzz... Um, in particular, where a lot of you, all of your Gmail contacts were exposed to the world, basically, um, because the engineers thought they were saving you time. They were doing a great thing. You know, you didn't have to import all your contacts. They were going to do it for you. What's wrong with that? Um, you know, saving time was a good thing. So I think by the definition of an engineer, it wasn't evil. It was good um, because it was efficiency. And so I think, and I, I mentioned this in in an interview I did. You know, Google doesn't have enough irrational people working there um, because they don't really understand how people other than engineers view things like privacy. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and possibly the rest of the world has too many irrational people. So, you know, there's a mismatch there. Um, I don't think Google, you know, I, I mean, it's been six years, six years since I worked at the company, right? So I, I can only say what I've seen. Um, and the people I knew when I was at Google would not intentionally do something evil. They might do something evil because they made a bad assumption. Um, and I think when they do things like that, they try to correct it. I think Buzz, you know, they immediately realized what a mistake that was. And if you look at Google+, and the granularity of the privacy settings in Google+, which I think are superior to those of Facebook, um, I think they've corrected it. And that iterative model where you do something, you screw it up, and then you do it again and it's better, and then you finally get it right the third time, is not uncommon in Silicon Valley. Thank you, Sam. Okay, thank you. Do you have someone? Oh, I'll put the top there. Thank you. Um, in the light of uh, Eric Schmidt's... Uh, promise to HTC that he's going to lend support in their travails with uh, Apple Inc. Um, have you any idea what that help may be? And uh, wouldn't uh, Google's best bet perhaps be to um, press much harder for an end to software patents? Well, I'm, I'm going to beg off that question because it, it requires knowledge that um, you know comes from uh, after I left Google. and. You know, I could speculate, but my speculation would probably not be as good as yours because I, I suspect you're better informed about that than I am. So I, I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert on what Google's current strategy is. Um, you know, I can trace some things back to the roots. I can tell you at the beginning they adored Apple. And Google, uh, you know, I remember when I was running uh, the weekly TGIF meetings, the all-staff meetings that we held every Friday. And Larry had gone to Macworld and seen a presentation by Steve Jobs in which he introduced a new software called Keynote, which was a presentation software, Apple's answer to, to PowerPoint. And Larry was blown away. He was like, okay, we have to get that. And I'm like, well, Larry, we don't have any, you know, we have to do our TGF presentations using Keynote. I said, well, Larry, we don't have any Macs. He said, go out and buy a Mac. <laughs> go out and buy a Mac. And then go out and buy Keynote. It wasn't even commercially available, you know, available at that point. Go out, get a Mac, get a Keynote, and next Friday we're doing our presentation. And, you know, so, you know, implied in that was not only go out and get a Mac, get the software, but learn how to use it and redo the entire presentation so it would be ready. So, I mean, they were big fans of Apple, and it's been kind of interesting and a little bit sad to see the deterioration of that relationship. So, that I can comment on. The, the modern stuff, not so much. Someone at the back there, please. Um, you said earlier that um, when Larry and Sergey were um, at Stanford, 
that they thought uh, that advertising would have the potential to corrupt um, the sort of means of uh, the search engine. Do you think that's taken place now, um, with taking into regards things like quality score and uh, the auction model, where potentially someone who's not relevant to the search query could actually bid up to the point where they would be above relevant people? Well, to take your last question first, that was the whole innovation of AdWords, you know, the third iteration, was that it wasn't just how much you bid to get your ad at the top of the display. It was how much you bid times the click-through rate. So if you put up an ad that was completely irrelevant and nobody clicked on it, it didn't matter how much you were paying for it. It would disappear because nobody was clicking on it, and that was a factor in the ranking of the display. That was something Overture, our competitor, did not understand. And so when you did a search for a keyword like flight on Overture, instead of getting American Airlines or Expedia or somebody you know, who might legitimately uh, want to own that keyword, you'd get uh, this little flight school in Omaha, Nebraska that was serving millions of impressions and not paying for any of them because nobody clicked on the ad. Nobody cared about a flight school in Omaha. And so that meant no revenue for Overture and it meant you know, the advertiser was getting a free ride. So they changed that model. Um, and what was the first part of your question? Sorry. No, the first part was just sort of stating what you initially said. But do you think that the current model is sort of true in, in that reflection? It's, it, do you think it does not corrupt um, the search engine? Well, so at the time you know, that this was being discussed back in you know, early 2000, um, the industry looked different. The industry had uh, a standard practice of pay for placement. And so you uh, could go to a lot of the search engines and you could say, I will pay you to put my ad directly in line with all the search results. And so it was indistinguishable, usually, between what was an actual search result determined by an algorithm and quote unquote, objectively, and what was paid as an advertisement to be inserted into those search results. And that was just anathema to, to you know, people at Google because here you have these engineers who've derived this brilliant algorithm for ranking search results in order of importance. Why would you pollute that with inserting these paid advertisements? It was dishonest and it was corrupt and it was just bad programming. You know? I mean, it was just you know, disrespectful to the algorithm. So um, they never wanted to do that. And the solution they came up with was to put the ads to the side with a clear delineation between what was an ad and what was an objectively derived search result. So I think a lot of search engines did succumb to the temptation to promote advertisers and did so quite openly. Um, Google never uh, would do that. Thank you. There's some, someone in the, oh, Kate. Oh, okay. Um, in the, when you first came to Google in the early 90s. Um, late 90s. Oh, sorry, late 90s. It kind of almost looked like a carbon copy of Yahoo in many ways. And that's what a lot of people were saying. And then obviously Google dominates the majority of the search engine um, world right now. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that was a product of branding? Or do you think that was a product of delivering a better service than Yahoo? Oh, I'd love to say it was branding. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, that was me. Um, well, first off, I, I have to kind of dispute your assertion that they were identical. I mean, Yahoo, and you're probably too young to remember, but um, <laughs> Yahoo had links everywhere. They had a directory, right? Their primary way of finding information was a directory, which meant that they had all these categories with sublinks below it, and then they had ads, and they had this, and they had that. Google only had a search box, you know, and a couple of words underneath it. Um, so they, even from the very onset, they were different in their appearance. But absolutely, the quality of Google search results is what made the difference. Um, because it was so easy for any user to see Google's superiority by just putting the same search into Yahoo and the same search into Google, or the same search into AltaVista and the same search into Google. So the product demonstrated its superiority, its superiority instantly. And when you have a product that doesn't cost anything to use, and it's inherently superior, um, and it makes you feel smart when you use it, people tend to talk about that. And so you know, that word of mouth buzz that built around Google because it works so much better, and hey, if I tell you about it, you're going to think I'm a genius because I found it, right? I mean, I came to refer to that as the joy of discovery. I've uncovered this miracle, and I'm the only one who knows about it because you know, I don't see it advertised on TV. You know, I'm not reading about it in you know, ads and magazines. 
I found it. It's my product. And I'm now going to share my wisdom with my friends, and they're going to think I'm a genius. So that tended to build a lot of word of mouth for the product. You can mention that in your exam on Friday, maybe, <laughs> word of mouth. <laughs> OK. Um, there's someone you have to cite your source. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's obvious that um, Google set a new precedent in terms of searching. Would you say now they're trying to play catch-up in social networking with Google+, in the mobile phone industry, and also in the software operating um, system industry, where they're not really, they don't really know that much about it, and they're trying to catch up with big market leaders who've got massive shares? Yeah. Well, you know, when they entered the search industry, there were market leaders who had massive share, like Yahoo and Inc. to me. And they entered that industry, people thought they were crazy. I mean, when I told people that I was leaving my job, you know, a nice, secure management job at the San Jose Mercury News newspaper, you know, the newspaper of Silicon Valley, to go work for a search engine in 1999, they were like, search engines, come on, you know, that's like, so five years ago, you know, who does search engines, you know, can't you, if you're going to leave, couldn't you come up with something better? But, um, but they demonstrated that, you know, superior technology um, could take a, a prominent share of the market. And so I'm sure that still drives them as they go into new spaces. Now, I, I don't think there's any question they fell behind Facebook on social networking. And I think they were very slow to recognize the value of social networking. And I would, I would suspect that there are people at Google today who still don't really view social networking as valuable because of the warm, fuzzy connections you can make with your friends and you can communicate. What they look at and, and you know, wonder about is, there's all this valuable information contained in a social network. And Facebook doesn't share. So Google can't get at all that wonderful information in Facebook. And so if they want to have access to all these great opinions and updates and recommendations and likes and so forth, they have to have their own network that they can harvest that information from. So um, I think they were slow to, to recognize that. but. Um, I think they've come out with a very strong start with Google+. I mean, it's 10 million plus users in two weeks. Um, that's a pretty rapid growth curve. And, you know, I'm using it myself, and I'm, I'm a heavy Facebook user, and I use Twitter. Um, and I'm finding myself increasingly spending more time on Google+, in part because so many people I know, who all happen to be ex-Googlers, are on Google+. But um, it's also that I can very easily determine who sees my post or the message that I put up. So I think they figured out some things that will make them very competitive. And I expect Facebook will, will you know, <laughs> retaliate or at least you know, respond. But that's what makes competition so interesting. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Just the guy behind yeah. actually yeah. had He's his been hand waiting up. for a while. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, thanks. Um, as Google started to expand its marketing footprint internationally, and I guess that was the, definitely the time when you were there, and particularly like with opening the offices in the other countries and whatnot, did Google try to position itself as an American company or as an international company or this kind of global thing? And how directed was that by you? And just your thoughts on that. That's a really good question that caused me to lose all of my hair. Um, <laughs> because, you know, we started opening all of these you know, sites that were in language in different countries and internationalization fell into my area because it wasn't engineering, so it must be marketing, right? Because they're only, <laughs> so along with customer service, which also is not engineering, so it must be marketing. Um, and we had a lot of discussion and debate. I mean, should we try to create separate entities in each country we went into? Um, you know, everything from should we show the Google Doodle you know, if we, if we change the logo on the homepage, what country should we show it in? Well, I'll tell you this, you don't show a Wright Brothers, you know, history of airplane, you know, the first flight doodle in Brazil, because they claim that they were the first ones. <laughs> so, you know, you learn things, you know, along the way. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately we decided that we wanted one Google brand. You know, we wanted it, we wanted people to have the same experience with Google across the world. I think the one exception we made was Korea, because we were really struggling in Korea to build any kind of traction. And what we saw and what we learned was that in Korea, they really wanted more density of information. They didn't like this 
homepage that only had a search box on it. Um, a lot of Americans didn't like it originally either, but they got used to it. And then they liked the fact that it was so fast. But in Korea, it was a problem. So now they do different, you know, they have the ability to target doodles to different countries. And so they do a whole range of, you know, branding elements for each country. Um, when we started, we had Dennis, you know, Dennis Wong, who was the assistant webmaster and who did all the doodles, and he just could not, you know, create different doodles for every country, you know, and that's all he would have been doing, and he already had a lot on his plate. So uh, it was not, you know, an easy kind of thing to figure out, but we ended up deciding that overall the Google brand was the most important thing. And I, I, I talked in the book a little bit about the architecture of the Google brand and, and how that came about because I, I bring it up today because there was some news that I, I read online just before I came here. The first product that we launched that was not the search engine was the Google Open Directory or God. Um, and this was our response to Yahoo because Yahoo was a directory and you know Larry and Sergey hated directories because a directory you have to know what you're looking for, you have to know how to get there. You have to drill down, drill down, drill down, drill down until you find the thing you're looking for. That's so inefficient, right? You want to take all of the data you have and just kind of put it in a big old bag and then have a search engine go right down and find exactly what you want. Search is much more, um, you know, saves you much more time. So, but Yahoo was a directory, people like directory, so we put up a directory and we added a search engine to it. And the question was, well, what do we call it? Do we call it you know, give it some spiffy name, you know, spin it off as a separate product. Um, and, you know, my recommendation was that no, we should just call it the Google Directory um, because, uh, you know, if we started giving a name to every new product, you know, a, a specific product name, like, you know, um, Goo Director, you know, or something, you know, and try to make it separate from Google itself. Um, we would end up with this brand proliferation that was just going to be unwieldy and hard to manage. So we decided that for each new service we introduced, we would brand it Google. Google Images, uh, Google Directory, um, you know, whatever the other services at the time. And we stuck with that all the way through up to a certain point, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I, I bring that up because today Google killed the directory. So it's official, God is dead. Um, <laughs> they have taken it off the site because, in fact, people don't want directories, they want search. Search is just more effective. Um, and the exception that I mentioned, the, the product that uh, we did name was called Frugal. How many people here remember Frugal? Okay, so some people actually used it, okay. I threw myself in front of multiple trains trying to stop the name Frugal. I just, I hated the name Frugal for several reasons, but Frugal was, Frugal was supposed to be a product search. You know, you, you type in a product you're looking for and it, it returns results from all over the web for that product. So you enter the name of a toaster and you get back, you know, 100 pictures of a toaster with the price and they're all within, you know, five cents of each other. And, and so it, it wasn't terribly useful. It wasn't a comparison shopper. It didn't, you couldn't actually buy any of the toasters. It would just point you to a website where you could buy it. So it, it was a very kind of half-baked or half-toasted thing. Um, and I didn't think we should give it a real product name. Frugal clearly was meant to be a separate product from Google. So do you, when you're looking for a toaster, do you go to Google or do you go to Frugal? But um, all of these elaborate presentations I did in our executive staff meeting about here's all the reasons it's bad to give it its own name um, were overruled uh, by Sergey Brin because Sergey thought the word Frugal was cute. <laughs> And so we went with Frugal. And um, what happened was when we launched Frugal, people said, hey, look, Google's entering into the comparative search, you know, the comparative pricing uh, space, and they're gonna compete with Amazon, and they're gonna become a marketplace. And, a, and then when none of that happened, you know, the traffic to Frugal just plummeted because it couldn't do any of those things. So eventually, they turned it back into Google Product Search, which was the name that I had originally recommended. So that's one for me. <laughs> Okay, next question. There's a lady in the middle there with striking top. What would you recommend to a young person who wanted to run a startup today? Have a great idea, hire really good people. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's, 
you know, people start up companies all the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, the hardest part is finding good people to help you with it. You know, I mean, if you have an idea that you can execute yourself, do it. You know, you'll learn a lot even if it doesn't succeed. And then if it doesn't succeed, take what you learned and do another one. And there are people in Silicon Valley, that's what they do. They're serial entrepreneurs. They start one company, they either, you know, sell it or uh, it goes bankrupt, you know, and then they say, okay, I'm going to do something else. And they move on to the next thing. But don't get discouraged because you're going you're gonna to run into obstacles. But, you know, you have to remember that even when you fail, you gain something from that failure. So don't be afraid. Just try it. Maybe okay. before you have the three children. Yeah, before you have three kids, that's you know, a little easier. Okay. Right. I haven't had anyone from over there. Is there someone over in the corner at the back, that lady? Yeah, well, maybe. Um, well, the thing that I'm really proudest of is, is sort of the overall tone that you know, Google took during that time. You know, I, I wrote all of the copy that went on the website. So everything from 10 things we found to be true to the April Fool's jokes um, to, you know, all the product descriptions and the FAQ. So, you know, my goal in doing all that was to give a human voice to Google and make it not quite so cold and scary. Now, you know, Sergey was the one who came up with the idea of changing the logo every day, which I told him was ridiculous. But um, that is probably you know, the single most important thing in terms of giving Google its personality. But I like to think that the other things that we did, and in particular um, around the Google toolbar when we launched that, there was a moment where the Google toolbar, which is a downloadable application, you know, it stays in your browser and you can have it with you as you go around the web. Um, that was a very important strategic initiative for Google. And the reason was Microsoft was in the process, we thought, of building a search box into Windows. So you would never have to go to Google to search, you could do it directly from Windows. That scared the bejesus out of us. And um, we wanted to make sure that you could access Google search even if you didn't go to google.com. So that meant building it into the browser. So if you opened a web browser, there would be a search box there even if you weren't on google.com. So it was an incredibly important initiative for us to get as many millions of people as possible to download the Google toolbar. So one of the features in the Google toolbar, which was optional, you didn't have to turn it on, was the ability to look at the page rank of every page that you went to. And what that meant was you'd see a little green bar that showed Google's evaluation of the importance of that page. Um, the only issue with that was in order to deliver that little green bar to your browser, Google had to know every page you visited on the web. So in a sense, Google was tracking your movement across the internet, which was a little scary for some people. Um, and so Google could easily have offered that option. And what most companies at the time were doing when they wanted to introduce features like that was they, you know that EULA, the end user license agreement, that 416 pages of text that you don't bother to scroll through before you say, I agree. Um, we could have put it in there on page 127, you know, and just, you know, oh, by the way, you know, Google is going to see every page that you visit on the web. Nobody, you know, for a while at least would have been the wiser. Um, and that really bothered me. Um, I, I had an issue with that because I knew people would be very upset if they somehow felt they had been tricked into revealing every page they visited online. Um, so I proposed that we put in the installer, when you downloaded the toolbar, you'd have to go through a screen that said in very large red letters, read this, it's not the usual yada yada. And then it said underneath it, you know, Google, you know, by enabling this feature, Google will see what pages you're going to on the web. Um, so the danger in doing that was that people would read that and be scared and say, I'm not going to touch this thing, and they'd back away and we would lose, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of potential toolbar downloaders. Um, and it would have been, again, easy for Larry and Sergey to say, no, it's too scary, we're not going to do this. Because it, it's too important for us to take the chance that people won't download the toolbar. But instead they said, yeah, go ahead, put it in. So everyone who downloaded the Google toolbar saw that big red warning message. And 
instead of creating an uproar, what it did was completely diffuse the privacy issue around the toolbar. Because what happened was people would say, oh, they're warning me that they're doing this. They must be okay. You know, hey, you know, they didn't try to bury it. They're telling me right up front, okay, well, I'll just turn it off or I don't care, you know, and I'll just download it. And then, you know, when people tried to start a flame war on a message board, say, oh my God, Google's invading our privacy, look what they're doing. People would just say, hey, dude, look, you know, you had to read this message, right? You know, how could you possibly complain? It's not like they didn't warn you. And I think that one, uh, that, that got picked up by a lot of the national media in the United States. Excuse me, uh, I think the New York Times, and, you know, a lot of large papers wrote about it. And it gave Google some breathing room around the issue of privacy because people suddenly trusted us. Not suddenly, but I mean, they had trusted us up to that point, but it, it confirmed for them that we were not going to do evil. We were not going to try to trick them into giving us information that, that we shouldn't have. Um, Microsoft never got that breathing room, and a lot of other companies didn't get that breathing room. So I don't know that Google still has the residual glow from that. Uh, I think it's long gone. But for a while there, it was, it was you know, Google was a, a white hat, a, a good guy. Okay. Lady in the middle there. Um, the U.S. government seems to be moving rapidly towards putting in lots of controls controlling the Internet. There's this new copyright uh, thing that they're putting through where you can really easily shut down sites, domain names, and apparently they're going to make Google block certain domain names that they feel to be in violation. Now, we, the, this violation of copyright laws could be really trivial. It looks like it's going to change the whole face of the Internet. Um, to what extent is Google going to knuckle under to the U.S. government? Because I know this year at the Bilderberg meeting, one of the, one of the guys from Google went, went to the, and there's a lot of controversy about that because if people don't know, the Bilderberg meeting is a meeting that takes place in private once a year with all the, the most uh, richest people in the world, and uh, there's a lot of secrecy surrounding it, and Google were there. So to what extent is Google going to... Resist the U.S. government who are working rapidly. Well, now, are you talking about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA? Because that's been in place for a while. And in fact, Google did have to deal with complaint, you know, which enabled a copyright holder to remove a demand that Google take down a link to a website. And that was used by the Church of Scientology to insist that Google remove links from Google search results to a site that had published some internal. Scientology documents, and the church said, this belongs to us, it's copyrighted material, so under the DMCA, you have to remove these results. And what Google ended up doing was, yes, they removed the results, and in their place, they put a link to the website chillingeffects.org, and Chilling Effects, on their website, at the other end of that link, put up a copy of the complaint that had been filed by the Church of Scientology, which listed the website that had been removed. <laughs> so, you know, this was their way around because they didn't want to censor the information, um, but they had to comply with the law. The law of the land is the law of the land. Google cannot disobey, you know, federal law unless they want to go to jail. So, you know, and, you know, I talk about that because I think it actually gave Google a sense of confidence that may have been uh, premature because, you know, the the solution to the Scientology problem, to the DMCA problem, was based on technology. Now, they came up with a clever way of using the technology to resolve the issue. When they got to China, they thought they could do the same thing. And I, I think China, you know, really was the first time that Google came up against an intractable problem that they could not solve simply through a better technology or a clever use of technology. And, you know, Google is so big now that they keep bumping up against things like, you know, Monopoly and China um, that in the early days they were able to kind of innovate their way out of. So. Thank you. Okay, I think we've probably got time for two more questions still. Okay, so let's, that guy at the back there, thank you. Um, uh, I'm pretty lucky employee number 59. Uh, would you say number 58 was luckier? Uh, well, I, I think 58 was the massage therapist, so I actually felt pretty lucky that she was hired before me because I got to start using her services immediately. So.
I was just wondering what kind of, during the time you were there, uh, how much of a source of inspiration and ideas was the time that employees got to work on their own project and how did it influence your area, brand management and like that? Well, um, we got to put in 20% uh, time too. Uh, you know, that's the practice of you spend 20% of your time working on something unrelated to your primary duties, which, you know, Google uh, has in place for engineers. You know, our 20% time was in addition to the 150% time we were already spending. <laughs> and I think that's probably true of a lot of the engineers too. I mean, yeah, it, it, you know, I, Paul Buchheit, who uh, was the engineer who wrote Gmail and actually came up with the expression, don't be evil, um, he takes some credit for coming up with the notion of 20% time because one of the things that he did when he was building Gmail was in his spare time he built an ad targeting uh, system that would enable him to target ads in, in Gmail, uh, even though he had been explicitly told that we would never target ads in Gmail. And so he decided on his own, you know, what the heck, you know. I mean, there were a bunch of Google engineers, including Larry and Sergey, were on his prototype of Gmail called Caribou internally. And, you know, Paul was very concerned that he would not be able to get his project launched, his product launched, because if there was no revenue, they, would, they wouldn't launch it. So he had to figure out a way to make revenue. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, he and his colleague decided that, well, you know, it shouldn't be that hard to target ads to, to email messages. And they hacked together something in the middle of the night, and they launched it in the middle of the night. And so when all the engineers came back the next day and they opened their email, there were all these targeted ads. Some people were quite upset by that. But Larry and Sergey looked at it and said, hey, this works pretty well. You know, and so they you know, put together a team to keep doing it. And so Paul thinks that that was the origin of the 20% time, because it was not officially sanctioned for him to do that. Um, I'm not sure that's entirely, you know, accurate, but Paul likes to think so. Okay, guys, well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, don't forget, for any of you guys that are interested, we're going to be leaving, um, going out into the lobby area, and Doug will be hanging around to sign copies of his book, which is the I'm Feeling Lucky, The Confessions of Google Employee 59. Um, but may I just say thank you, everyone, for coming along here and giving us um, your attention. And thank you, Doug, for coming in. <laughs>